Jedi Council is a podcast for entertainment and informational purposes only. It should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council podcast. We like to explore mental health in your favorite fictional characters. This is your Jedi co-host, Brandon Saxton. And Katie Gordon. I wonder if Jedi is a protected title. Because I just said Jedi co-host, which implies that not only am I a co-host, but also a Jedi. Like, I know there's no, like, formal licensing <laughs> for it, but... We're mm. not officially affiliated with Star Wars. That's true. If you thought so, I'm sorry, but we're not. I read something recently about the census. Uh, I don't know if it was in this country. It may have been in Australia, and it was a yeah. While I, I think this. I think you're right. I think that was Australia, <laughs> okay. where so many folks were identifying their religious uh, affiliation as Jedi that the government like was like, "Please don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's too, it's too many people." The Jedi census phenomenon. Yeah, so that's what it was. Interesting. Huh. I didn't realize there was a movement suggesting yeah. people. I to record their religion the, as Jedi or Jedi Knight. The second, uh, the second search down on your Google search there, I think confirmed what I thought, um, or the second item on the back on the Google page. Yep. Okay. Yeah, there it was. Australians urged not to pledge Jedi as their religion. Yeah. Interesting. In the census. It was 0.37% according to Wikipedia that identified as a Jedi for their religion. Started as a joke, and now it's become a problem. 65,000 Australians in the 2011 census identified <laughs> as following the Force. That's interesting. Hmm. Just thought of that when I kind of abbreviated Jedi Council to just Jedi <laughs> while I was introducing myself. Well, that's interesting. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, this is our second podcast of the day, a bonus a Jedi bonus podcast. That's right. Or a bonus Jedi Council podcast. I don't know. Some variation of those <laughs> four words uh, is us here uh, talking about a movie. And a lot of our bonus podcasts are usually movies that we go and see in the theaters, like Wonder Woman or Spider-Man or Logan, traditionally comic book or comic book adjacent movies that we're just so excited to talk about that we need to just get on the mic and tell you how much mm -hmm. we loved it. Today's a little different. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Netflix's uh, original movie, To the Bone, uh, which is not comic book related at all, but does fit within the foundation or framework of the Jedi Council podcast or Jedi Council whatever, everything that we're doing, project, I guess, uh, which is that we like to talk about uh, fictional characters and explore mental health in those, and that can go in a couple different directions. Uh, sometimes we just choose a fictional character like uh, Batman, for example, or Buffy. And we talk about some of the mental health stuff that they might be experiencing, but the characters weren't expressly designed as depicting a specific mental health problem. Maybe an exception with Buffy in Season 6. That seemed a little more intentional. Uh, but today we're changing the focus a little bit, and we're going to focus on a piece of media that was expressly designed to depict a mental health disorder, uh, specifically uh, anorexia nervosa, and maybe just eating disorders in general. Uh, the main character has anorexia nervosa, and I think uh, there's uh, different disorders across the eating disorders across the different sort of people uh, in the film. Not all of them, but yeah. So that's the focus for today, to yes. the bone. And we also wanted to do an extra episode since 
due to our technical difficulties yeah. last week, we didn't have any episode. That's true. I take the full blame for that. Uh, I forgot to activate or rather switch the microphone that we're recording into. So we were looking at our nice blue snowball microphone when in fact my horrible laptop microphone that's not even like near our faces was recording the sound. So you couldn't hear anything. I thought about trying to mess with the levels, but it just it sounded like we were talking through a cloud. Either yeah, that's not pleasant to listen to. Yeah, I don't... I don't want to scare people off, and especially with the important topic yeah. of OCD that we had to talk about. So we re-recorded that one today, and of course, here's uh, what was meant to be this week's episode, which is about To the Bone, mm-hmm. which I think uh, I watched it about a week ago, I think. Yeah, I think it was last week that I watched it, so pretty fresh in my mind mm-hmm. still. I took some notes, forgot them at home, so I don't have <laughs> them with me, but luckily I've got them all up in the old steel <laughs> trap. Uh, and I think... There's research that even just writing those notes, as you know, mm-hmm. helps to remember things, absolutely. whether or not you bring them with you. Yep, absolutely. So, good work, past brain. <laughs> you know, not the best with uh, remembering the notes, but at least I wrote. Mm-hmm. So, uh, should we start things off uh, with a quick sort of breakdown of what we're going to do today? Sure. So, we're going to talk about our just general overview slash impressions, reaction, and response to the film. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the diagnostic criteria for anorexia nervosa, how that might be different from bulimia nervosa and binging disorder. Uh, we're going to specifically talk about the criteria for anorexia nervosa and I think just sort of quickly qualify how it might be different, but I think that was kind of the game plan at this uh, point. Uh, we've got some great questions from Facebook and Twitter that we're going to kind of try to integrate uh, throughout uh, the podcast, but I think they might fall in with the diagnostic criteria and just sort of talking about the disorders. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the strengths and weaknesses of the film. What do we think was good? What are some areas that might be improved? And uh, and we'll just see where we go after that. That's just a quick rundown. So to start things off, uh, do we think a really quick summary of the movie is necessary? Yeah. If, that's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah, I'm happy to do that if that's okay sure, with you. please. Marty Noxon, who was a writer on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, wrote this film about partially autobiographical it's not exactly towards her experience but she made it pretty clear in some interviews that she wanted to write about a story about someone suffering from anorexia nervosa and that's the purpose of it it's not supposed to be a documentary or kind of like a public service message and that kind of thing and so she talks about this through the depiction of this character named ellen who has anorexia nervosa and it kind of gives you this snapshot into her life, right? It you it goes right into when she is sent home from a treatment center. Mm-hmm. Well, they show her in group therapy. She's actually kicked out, yep. I think, because of just being kind of mean to some other yep. people in there and doesn't really want to be there. She goes home to live with her stepmom and her dad and stepsister, or half-sister, sorry. Yep. And her, her step mom finds another therapist who's said to have good results and and really is like we've got to try this we've got to make this work she's very concerned about her and so you kind of see the pathway through that type of treatment and spoilers by the way so if you haven't seen it yet it is streaming on netflix uh but there will be we'll be talking about details in here and it kind of ends in a way where it's not showing how everything turned out, right? It's just, mm-hmm. it's showing this series of maybe months into what her experience is like. And so 
the way that Marty Noxon did this as part of her style is there is some realism to it. There's some humor put in there, even though it's a very serious topic. And I'm generally a fan of her, as you can probably tell by the way that I'm talking about her, and also because I love Buffy so much. And so that immediately drew that to me, especially since I focus on eating disorder. Yeah. So it drew that to me. It drew me to it. I don't... <laughs> I was drawn... <laughs> I can't say this correctly. I was drawn to watch the film, one, because Cat pointed it out as something that would be good to discuss on Jedi Council. Thanks, Kat. She's on um, Geek Family and Therapy, another mm-hmm. podcast on our network. And also, uh, between that and it being about eating disorders and Marty Knox and being involved, it's just something I'd be interested in. Oh, yeah. Eating disorders are really, am I wrong in saying just your expertise, just plain and simple? Yeah, eating disorders and suicide yes. are my two main areas of focus, so this was definitely something I wanted to watch, and I did. But enough meta about my <laughs> how, Welcome to how, the Katie how, what pulled me in about it yeah. and the many my rationale for deciding to to really commit to that just over an hour of watching something on netflix i have a quick question sure uh every time you watch something does mm-hmm. it involve quite so much deliberation and like universal <laughs> no. pull or no actually you know what though honestly sometimes it does when i me when too. i don't have an be- only for time management sake mm. i feel like there are so many things especially coming out with therapy or mental health involved, mm-hmm. even in Netflix original series alone, right? There's Gypsy, Atypical is going to yep. be on. There are a lot of these different things, and I want to watch them discuss them. Iron Fist has some mental health yeah. stuff in it. And Legion. and if you have, like, an hour or two to watch stuff, you got to be picky. And, that's, yeah. and, and also, I do end up sometimes watching stuff I've already watched multiple times, and it's... I don't know if that's good budgeting, so I'm really going to have bad. to take a look at my mm-hmm. decision process, and that's why you've started to hear the beginning of how I, I how I make my determinations. We could create a whole new podcast just about you deliberating about what to watch. Next. I think it will be really interesting mm-hmm. to a number of people. I'll just tweet every thought that I have mm-hmm. every time I, I like change that. my mind. I'll crowdsource some polls so that yep. I can make a decision. Uh, fascinating stuff. I like that. I like that a lot. Something you said just resonated with me about how many like good shows are that mm-hmm. you watch it and how much time I spend just watching The Office again. <laughs> it's really not a good way to progress in the media I want to consume. No, but like for me, since we're just going to go on with this tangent a little bit, is is that if I'm multitasking, yes. like it, I don't want to watch a new show that requires detail. So even if I'm doing household chores, like mm. if I'm washing the dishes, I know you're supposed to do that mindfully, but I don't always do that. I'll or the laundry or something. I'll put on something, but I don't want to put something that really I have to pay attention yeah. to. Or some, I usually watch things before I go to sleep, and then at that point I'm really if I want it to be something that I don't mind if I fall asleep yeah. to. So recently, I've, <laughs> since you seem so intrigued by this topic, <laughs> I've been working through some of the Netflix stand-up comedy oh, nice. specials that they have because while they're super funny, I can kind of fall asleep while laughing and I don't mind if I miss it because I know mm-hmm. I can just pick it up. However, if I was watching something else like, I don't know, when I was binge watching Winona Earp to catch mm-hmm. up or something like that, then I would definitely be tempted to just watch one more episode and that might go on forever. So anyway, that that's my thought process. Makes a lot of sense. <laughs> In the same way. It's more information just... than you ever needed to know. Oh, no way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Great summary of the film and your... <laughs> Netflix watching. If you're criteria. still there, listeners, yeah. I promise I'll go back to something probably of more interest and in why you listen to this podcast, which is fictional characters and yeah. mental health. Certainly more to the point of this episode. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, <laughs> Thank you for that gentle redirection. <laughs> <laughs> what was the uh, what was your impression of the film as an eating disorder expert, someone who's worked with individuals who have eating disorders? Uh, wh- what did you? Th- well, maybe that's two separate questions. What did you think of the film, just as a, a general viewer, or what did you think as an expert? I don't know. Can you differentiate yourself that way? I, I'm not sure. I, I can't can. really separate those things, no. but I guess there are some elements in that. Some of it is that, like, I guess part of the eating disorder researcher in me mm-hmm. would like, like, it to be about messaging, right? Positive right. messaging. Whereas just the person who's watching it, I want it to be, I'm more looking for things that are realistic and the normal things that I look at within shows. But realistic stuff is going to be more important Mm -hmm. if it's, I've worked with people who have eating disorders and stuff like that. So in terms of, and I think that dominates because it is a show, right? And I Mm -hmm. think that it's not a documentary. There are documentaries out there. There are some really good ones also some not as good ones but um what i what i like about this was what i tend to like it shows anyway that it was realistic that it had some points of levity which is important when i'm watching something serious to me personally Mm -hmm. and that i mean the the realistic part meant a lot to me and that probably is both as a regular person (laughs) and (laughs) as someone who studies eating disorders because I care about that stuff, and I it seemed like they consulted with people mm-hmm. about it, and I liked that. I also liked that they start right off the bat with a content heads up for people. Like, mm-hmm. this is about eating disorder stuff. That's something you struggle with. You might not want to watch mm-hmm. that, and I appreciate that. We talked about how in 13 Reasons Why that was not as clear, mm-hmm. and that, that bothered me, right? Yeah. So, I don't know, but how about you? What were your overall impressions? Sort of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was, I mean... There was stuff I liked. There was some stuff that I was sort of like, eh, I'm not so sure about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically from just, uh, you know, being careful about what we're showing or about the impact of uh, media on mental health or understanding of mental health. Uh, but overall, I thought that it was pretty well done. And I think that my final sort of conclusion about it is there's more to like than dislike about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, I think maybe as a specific example of as an eating disorder researcher, something that probably wouldn't have bothered me if I was a viewer who mm-hmm. wasn't that was it's kind of almost a throwaway line. It's not a big focus, but there's Ellen is sitting in the waiting room with her stepmom and they're talking to another mom of someone of a daughter who has anorexia nervosa and they're waiting to see this therapist who they hope will finally be able mm-hmm. to help. And so Ellen's stepmom says you know, do you think this is going to work or something to that effect and the other mother says we have to do this, basically, something to that effect. We've already tried everything. Renfro, she specifically names the Eating Disorder Center Renfro, and Maudsley. And then Ellen's stepmom says, Maudsley, is that a nightmare? So Maudsley is, they're using the term to describe family-based treatment, which was developed in part at the um, Maudsley Hospital in England. And in that case, like, there is some realism there in that people do have some negative perceptions about what it's about so Maudsley in a very very simple way again this could be a whole another episode Mm -hmm. it's family-based treatment and the idea was that when people with eating disorders are in hospital settings and inpatient they tend to they can gain weight many of them but they might lose it again when they leave and part of that seems to be the effects of nurses or other people sitting with them and firmly 
warmly but firmly insisting that they eat so mm -hmm. that they can have nourishment, right? But what Monsley does is it, or family-based treatment as it's also called, is try to empower parents or a parent if it's a single, or any caregiver to do what the nurses did, but in the person's home so that it, it allows them to do outpatient treatment and show the parents that they have the skills and the ability to help refeed their child who is starving if they have anorexia. And it's, there are a couple really nice things about it. One is that it says we're agnostic about the causes of eating disorders. We don't know what they are, but we know what helps to reverse the mm -hmm. course of anorexia. And we're going to help you with that. So it's non-blaming of the family. And that's a big deal because historically some people have blamed family members for eating disorders. So I, that's helpful. And secondly, sometimes people think it's force feeding. It's not force oh, feeding sure. though. And so realistically, I do think some people might think, oh, it's a nightmare, but it, it's a misunderstanding. And knowing that it kind of hurts to for me to think if someone just hears that and they're like, yeah, I wouldn't want to try that. Oh, you know. And for that, we will link to Maudsley. And so that would be an example for me of where like, couldn't you throw... Now, to be fair, the mom then says, you know, it takes a long time to get used to it. So she doesn't kind of go on that pathway. But okay. there's not like a sudden, like, you know, on the screen, here's the link to find out more about sure. it. Or, by the way, this actually has really good success rates compared to other treatments for anorexia. Okay. So, anyway, that's an example. But um, overall, I liked a lot of it. I liked the story. I liked the way that it was done. Okay. Oh, uh, good. I like. I we're on the same page. That's always a good thing. And maybe <laughs> di we'll dive into some more of those strengths and weaknesses a little bit after we talk about anorexia nervosa. Does sure. that sound okay? Sometimes or, we should purposely pick something that we firmly disagree about just to test her out on the yeah, old podcast. That is an interesting, another interesting tangent because we usually are in agreement about almost everything mm -hmm. that at least that we talk about on the podcast. Yeah, I'll have to think about that. I wonder what that would be. I'm really gonna hash it out. Really rip this podcast apart. <laughs> Destroy. <right on> <laughs> um, yeah, so it, um, the anorexia nervosa, then I'm going to let you talk more because I've been talking a lot. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> but anorexia nervosa, as the criteria list in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, which is a book that mental health professionals use. It's written by the American Psychiatric Association. And what it does is it lists mental disorders and the symptoms. So according to that, for anorexia nervosa, the criteria is when someone is not having enough caloric intake to maintain their body weight at a minimally healthy level. It, that criteria used to be refusal to maintain body weight, but people viewed that as potentially contributing to negative stigma associated with anorexia sure. because it sounds very volitional mm -hmm. and not as much about the disorder. So they changed that to be more descriptive, which is basically the person is underweight and it's dangerously low. I, am I right in assuming that was a change that uh, professionals were in support of? I know there's sometimes some controversy in the DSM. I I don't like think something. yeah I think they were generally supportive and I I believe from what I remember that some of this was pushed by um, eating disorder activists and advocates who were saying this would help you know and this right. idea and that, that and that's just such a vital part of eating disorder organizations is hearing mm -hmm. those people have lived experience or who have mm -hmm. family members and and this is an example of where the change it it makes a difference it makes it more descriptive mm -hmm. which is how the DSM is supposed to be anyway yeah. right. 
Yeah, it's not a, as we've talked about before, and mm-hmm. I won't get on a DSM tangent, mm-hmm. but it's not a perfect uh, book yet. It's a working document. Yeah. Right? And that's why there's new additions and revisions mm-hmm. and changes and discussions. So yeah, it, exactly. Yeah. And eating disorders historically have been a problematic area in mm-hmm. the DSM because most people, as you know, who have eating disorders don't fall into the specific categories like anorexia mm-hmm. or bulimia. They fall into like kind of a catch-all category. And so that's a particular area where they're working to revise mm-hmm. the criteria to better capture real, you know, real, uh, I guess, the phenomena and how it really occurs. Um, the second criteria is intense fear of gaining weight or becoming fat, even though the person is underweight. Disturbance in the way in which one's body weight or shape is experienced. Undue influence of body weight or shape in self-evaluation. Denial of seriousness of the current low body weight. So put simply, when you think about yourself as a person, you know, are you a good person or a competent person? How much does weight and shape figure into that? For most people, appearance is somewhere in there and weight and shape is somewhere in there. But what we see with eating disorders is that it tends to affect them more than other things. So maybe they get on the scale and if they've gained a pound it's not just that they think oh I've gained weight and I don't want to do that they might actually think that they're not as good of a person because Mm -hmm. of it and so that's where with eating disorders it tends to become more extreme I know you know that but I'm explaining for the listeners oh no that's okay (laughs) I know because you you specifically assess this with people who come Mm -hmm. in for studies on eating disorders right yeah absolutely and that's exactly what it is it's uh well I mean you described it perfectly Mm -hmm. so I'm just reiterating but it's uh, seeing yourself as bad as a person, mm-hmm. you're doing almost like a moral. You're doing something morally wrong, uh, as as of uh, your eating or your weight. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's uh, uh, you can understand or it's easy to understand how that would be so painful. Exactly, yeah. very, very much so. And then another thing they changed from DSM four to DSM five is that. It used to include the criteria of amenorrhea, basically uh, people either ceasing to have menstruation or not having onset when they should have, but they changed it for a couple of reasons. One is it wasn't really a reliable indicator of mm-hmm. having anorexia, and actually there's some people saying that had all the other symptoms, but they weren't diagnosed with it, and they would say, sure. I don't have anorexia because I still menstruate. But also the other thing is so that... Um, boys and men aren't missed. I mean, it didn't apply to them anyway, but they were trying, but this was something, it wasn't that um, reliable anyway. So anyway, from there, it, there are two subtypes in anorexia. There's restricting type and the person doesn't usually engage in binge eating or eating large amounts of food or purging behavior, inducing vomiting or things like that. And then binge eating, purging type and those individuals, though they are underweight, they have fear of gaining weight, they have um, evaluate themselves based on their weight, they also can have episodes where they binge eat or eat a lot of food or um, and have loss of control, like they feel like they can't control how much food they're eating, or purging behavior where they're making themselves vomit, misuse laxatives. And I like to point out at this, when we're talking about this stuff as I do to my clients, that when individuals make themselves vomit because sometimes there's some fear that if you talk about it you're giving people ideas who are listening and it's hard to talk about it that way um when people make themselves vomit most of the calories are absorbed before the the food leaves the system so it's actually not really associated with weight loss so just putting that out there as um if that's a concern and it's also has a number of 
negative impacts on your health. Mm-hmm. It can erode your teeth. It can mess up your electrolytes. Mm-hmm. It can lead to dehydration. So anyway. Damage your esophagus. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, like really. A lot of physical problems. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Absolutely. So that's anorexia. And I don't know, maybe we should briefly mention how that's different from bulimia and binge sure. eating disorder. Yeah. What's the easiest way to do that I, without going into the diagnostic criteria? I, I'm deferring to you a little bit on this episode. I'm sorry, Ed. No, I, I don't I, mind. I just didn't want to talk no, too much if that wasn't I, welcome. <laughs> I just No, it's welcome because I, I want to just make sure that we're doing it the most accurate way possible. The, this show will never... This is the, kind of the challenge of the show, isn't it, a little bit? Because my dissertation and therefore sort of a lot of my expertise isn't going to be about suicide but you're also an expert on suicide so we'll never be able to just cover my expertise you have batman i guess (laughs) (laughs) i'm just kidding (laughs) that's the main thing and also you are much more up to date on research on depression than i am yeah that's that's a good point our our lab has done a lot of work with depression and uh and the vulnerability stuff with that so that chart you're keeping over there about Mm -hmm. where we rank on different um abilities and skills you Mm -hmm. can bump yourself up one good because a lot of my (laughs) self-esteem is just based on the upward social comparison of this podcast (laughs) that's a lot of pressure Uh, oh good uh (laughs) <laughs> so if you so in conclusion i can mention it the main thing with anorexia the reason it's a separate category the key of the dsm is to have the primary reason that we have it is for clinical use for therapists to yeah. have information anorexia having that increases the risk of premature death both by suicide and through medical complications. And that's why it's a separate category, even though there are some overlapping symptoms. So bulimia and binge eating disorder often can include things like overvaluing their weight and shape. It can also, it does include disorder eating by that nature. But anorexia is a separate category because of the low body weight part of it. Bulimia, nervosa, individuals with that typically have average body weight There's a lot of variability, but I'm just speaking in averages. And they tend to have binge eating episodes. Well, they do. Otherwise, they don't have bulimia nervosa, where they're eating a large, objectively large quantity of food, and they feel a loss of control. They feel like they can't stop. And then in addition, they're doing behaviors that they view as compensatory. So to make up for that calorie intake, vomiting, um, laxatives, fasting, things like that. For binge eating disorder, on average, those individuals um, don't do compensatory behaviors. Sometimes they can occasionally, but it's basically defined by having uh, binge episodes, like I just described for bulimia and even for the subset of anorexia that has binge eating and purging type. However, they also are not, on average, um, low weight. If someone is binge eating or they're binge eating and purging and they're low weight, anorexia automatically becomes the diagnosis because it's so medically important, both because of what it, the prognostics for, sorry, the predictions for treatment and medical outcome. That's why that kind of uh, usurps other categories. So anyway, that's the basic sure. difference. There's a quick, a quick breakdown of the differences. Yeah, lots of overlap. But. Yeah. Well, what should we cover next? We've got a whole list of things. Should we go into some of the um, Twitter and Facebook questions that we got? Sure, that next? sounds good. Yeah, or 
Is that what you had in mind too? Sure. Okay, that sounds good. So we had, uh, we'll start with a Twitter question, how about, which I think we're both recalling from memory because it's so hard to go back on Twitter. Um, Lauren uh, on Twitter, uh, one of our many classic great Twitter <laughs> followers, uh, asked us a little bit about what might be some of the um, vulnerability factors for eating disorders, particularly for individuals who might fall in minority groups. Am I remembering that right? Yes, and that's a very good question. It's important for deliver, like, delivering culturally competent services, which we've talked mm -hmm. about in a previous episode. So this is ac actually an area of research that I've done some work in and that I remain very interested in. And speak in identifying those specific mm -hmm. factors because the idea is that a lot of studies historically on eating disorders and a lot of mental disorders have been on predominantly white individuals and that's useful information but there's also been a priority both within science and within health fields to diversify that because what we found in medical fields is sometimes there are different pathways and different factors and so it's important to evaluate those and with regard to eating disorders, some work has found risk factors that seem to, that is individuals and in some of my research that experience discrimination, and it can be discrimination about anything. It doesn't have to necessarily be about their ethnicity, mm -hmm. but among individuals who identify as in belonging to an ethnic mi minority group, the experience of daily discrimination, including people saying negative things to them, being treated with less courtesy, to more formal things like being denied housing or being charged more for a car than than a peer who is white or something like that. Those things do seem to be related to eating disorder symptoms. Another factor seems to be internalizing the thin ideal, which we do tend to see across ethnic groups, but there's some research suggesting that individuals who belong to ethnic groups where the body ideal isn't as skinny as kind of the white mainstream ideal. This is all in the United States. So black women for a while were thought to be less susceptible to eating disorders. And it seemed part of that was because when you ask them, and I did this in, in a study once, what is your ideal body shape? And they look at different bodies. They tend to select larger than women who white women it's still a thin mm -hmm. figure but it's not it's not as thin okay and so that's thought to be protective because they're not working as hard to get uh to this lower weight and in addition something called acculturative stress has been found to be a risk factor and that has to do with stress associated with belong viewing oneself as belonging to different cultures so mainstream culture and then also being belonging to a minority culture and so the thought with all these things are that sometimes, and this hasn't been studied as well yet, I'm, I'm interested in learning more about this, is that some of the eating disorder behaviors may be done, and I'm speculating here, to cope with the stress, because we know that stress is related to like binge eating, mm -hmm. for example. And so if someone's experiencing stress in the form of discrimination, that might also be related. But in addition, there may be some desire, if there's a culture of stress, to try to make yourself fit in more is what you perceive as dominant culture or what is dominant culture and so that might drive some restricting behaviors or other things to try to make yourself different to fit in and so there needs to be more work on this but these are some of the factors that have been looked at all right 
great question and great answer. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Then we got a few questions on Facebook. I'm also realizing on this, we maybe should have, I don't know about the organization of this episode. <laughs> the questions probably should have came at the end after we talked about strengths and weaknesses. But that's okay. I th- we're, we're already started. We're committed to this path. I think the strengths and weaknesses, what if we tie them in to oh, the questions? Question. Even if they a... don't fit. <laughs> I like that approach. <laughs> or if you want, we could backtrack a little. No, to strings and weaknesses. we're already committed to this <laughs> okay. path. There's no turning back now. What's terrible about this is that, like, there's an outline in front of us. I should have just followed it. <laughs> That's okay. But this I, is our second episode in a row, so. Yeah, it's true. It's amazing how demanding a podcast can be. It's a lot of work. <laughs> visiting. <laughs> okay. So, tying in some of the strengths. Uh Related to people who might come from minorities, well, I guess one of the strengths that's somewhat related to this is that the cast was representative uh, or inclusive of a variety of people who seem to come from a variety of backgrounds. Yeah, that's uh, true. Particularly the individuals who were getting treatment for eating disorder at the house uh, included people from different uh, ethnic groups and also uh, males, which mm-hmm. was good to show like this idea that eating disorders can really impact anyone uh, despite, you know, some of the, uh, uh, I don't know if stereotype is, or misconception um, about exclusively uh, women struggling. With yeah, I think that's a good point. And he was a figure skater? Uh, he was a ballet dancer. That's what I thought at yeah. first, and then I was like, no, that doesn't seem right. I'm going to make something up. But I that's... think, no, and I and that's that was useful because, again, not generalizing at all, but there are certain types of activities that you tend to see higher rates mm-hmm. Of eating disorders and ballet might be one of them because especially when they do what are those shoes called that they stand on their toes toe shoes toe shoes that's the information i'm sorry all the ballerinas are gonna add us and the bell and what are they called male ballet people i don't know i'm really exposing my ignorance of ballet but anyway he's a he's a ballet dancer yeah, he does that. He well, participates he in ballet, and then he got an injury, and that's like, and injury. that, and that's really stressful. And so, I thought the inclusion of his character was really good. I thought that that was helpful because I do fear sometimes that you know men might get missed as having <laughs> these types of disorders, especially if they're doing something where the people are expected to be lighter. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a, a nice example of tying in a strength uh, to. One of the questions. <laughs> uh, um, let's jump over to one of our Facebook questions. Okay. On the Geek Therapy community page, if you're not a part of it, it is a closed group, but I think that's just a random, like, bots aren't posting. I think it's a group that people can belong to. Yes, I think you're yeah. right. So if you want to be a part of the Geek Therapy community. Because uh, Hoseway usually mentions it. Yep. So I yeah, think, a group on Facebook. Uh, go ahead and, and uh, request an, a, I don't know, invitation? Request? To join. To join. Thank you, yeah. Seems sort of formal now, but, <laughs> but send, uh, send an engraved letter with a through a wax carrier seal. pigeon. <laughs> yeah, um, but there's a lot of good conversation mm-hmm. that goes on. There. Oh, yeah. all the different people from the Geek Therapy Podcast Network share their content on mm-hmm. bodies. It's pretty good. Uh, Janet, on uh, I posted eliciting some questions. Asked, uh, I'm just going to condense the questions down, Janet. But thank you so much for including them. Her first question was, when is it okay to be an unorthodox uh, therapist? So. The therapist in the film, um, who I don't remember the name of, uh, Neo. <laughs> no, I'm just getting on with Dr. Neo, I believe Dr. it Neo. was. Um, uh, Dr. Beckham. Yes. Uh, Dr. Beckham in the, th- in the film sort of 
when you first are introduced to him in the office, he seems a, a little more like run of the mill, even if a little bit like, nope, I won't treat you yeah. if that's your attitude, but maybe just rigid. But as we get to get to know him and see some of his work, we see it's a little bit more of what folks might consider to be unorthodox. Uh, so, for example, uh, he holds a family session for the first session for Ellen, and uh, afterwards... Uh, well, even I think during it, they're kind of arguing over who's to blame for the eating disorder. And I think he says, like, F blame. Like, yeah. that doesn't matter. I, I didn't swear there because I want to keep this family. Okay. <laughs> Let's avoid that explicit We don't have the explicit on rating on iTunes. I think we have to add it ourselves. So <laughs> if we start to swear, we need to add it. But, keep uh, ourselves accountable. Yeah. Um, so that's one example. Uh, th- there's, a, you know, just throughout uh, his interactions with Ellen, we just see that he's really... Uh, you know, he he allows her to change her name at one he point. Tells her to t- yeah, he her tells name, her to change her name. He says Ellen ch- is an old person's yeah, an name. Yeah, an old person's name or an old-fashioned name. Yeah, oh. classic ageism. Uh, he encourages a, a romantic relationship between Ellen and the uh, male character whose name was... Nope, that's not... Not Jack. <laughs> Where is he? It's weird because we're looking at the IMDb Luke. page. Luke. Who in the world was Jack. It's that Donald Knowlton, of course. I don't remember that person being in the film, and they shouldn't be ranked higher than the other people. That is, that's the real mystery. <laughs> to the bone, isn't it? That's, that's, that's the most puzzling piece. Uh oh. Google in... didn't help at all. Nope. Well, we'll have anyway, to investigate that super later. Strange. But Luke, yeah. Thank you for reminding me. Or. Uh, helping me to find the answer on IMDb, rather. Um, he encourages a r- romantic relationship between the two of them, and that's not always something that you see a psychologist or mental health professional encouraging in an inpatient treatment center. Yeah, there. Yeah, that's often explicitly discouraged, yeah. right? In dialectical <laughs> behavior therapy, the group rules, which is a treatment for borderline personality disorder, sometimes used for eating disorders, but... Um, there's an explicit rule that you can't mm. be romantically involved mm-hmm. with someone for a lot of reasons. For good reasons. Yeah, a yeah. lot of reasons. But especially you can imagine, I'm not saying they don't, but at least the guideline from the therapist isn't like, yeah, I know you're living with someone while you're both in recovery from anorexia, but, you know, just now's a good time to get involved. And so, like, on one hand, it's like, I know I'm jumping a little bit onto this one, but it's like, you might see someone encouraging someone to be in a relationship, but... Given that they live in the same house, and also he has, like, Luke is kind of in a position where he's, I can only think of the ways they kind of make fun of him and call him, like, the house hen or something like that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he's someone who's been there for a while, and he actually seems to have a role as, like, a peer mentor, yep. too, so it's kind of, in that way, felt like, not the right boundaries. And as a therapist, you can understand how like, you could get into a tricky situation where you're seeing people for individual therapy, two people who are romantically involved. Right. And you, it's just a lot of trickiness, really. Yeah. So there's good reasons why it's usually discouraged. That was a little... I don't know whether that was... So, to, in all fairness, I don't know whether that was as part of, like, the unorthodox therapist right. thing. Or if that was just a movie thing where it's just, like... Like when we see therapists dating clients after, yeah. you know, if it's just not really adhering to the normal routine of therapy. Yeah. Hard to say. Yeah, and you know, the other thing is it just, if you're trying to date someone, that impacts the way you act around them. And oh, yeah. so if you're supposed to be focused on your treatment mm-hmm. for a potentially deadly disorder, mm-hmm. it seems like you don't want to mess with that. But then it's like the other side of me 
like I was saying before, is like she, um, she's dying. I mean, she's yeah. and she's had a lot of treatments that haven't worked. And so at that point, do you say, look, that stuff didn't work, and we're gonna try to change some things up, and maybe that means encouraging this relationship. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I personally, I felt very uncomfortable with that because, and right. that it's something I don't think is a good idea. But in trying to see where it's coming from, if this, if that part is based on a true experience, right. oh, or, right. or like you said, it might be a movie thing. Do you remember that old movie Rain on Me with Adam Sandler and Liv Tyler's a therapist? I'm not sure I saw it. It's interesting because he has um, post traumatic stress disorder, and his therapist, played by Liv Tyler, I think that's right. <laughs> good old IMDb because it's been a long time since it came out but anyway she tries to set up two of her clients like so they overlap oh, in sure. the waiting room oh, I and see. I ha- I have had students in my class so this came out in 2007 I have had students in my class before this is does not look right no this uh, is no this is right it is <laughs> it is right I think they list the characters like in order oh, of appearance instead of yeah Liv Tyler and then they she tries to and and basically so the gist of it is he has post-traumatic stress disorder following September 11th, and he it, she's trying to get him and another one of her clients to overlap in the waiting room to, like, set them up. And I'm mm-hmm. like, no. And so anyway, at least one student has been like, oh, that's not okay. I'm like, no. And it, and it just feels wrong. Because when it, when, like, how comfortable would you be going to a therapist and being like, they're encouraging certain romantic relationships, like, you know, sure, you talk about relationships, and they right. might be, I think you should go for it. This would be good mm-hmm. for you, or think through it. But not like they are getting involved like and a, being like, you two get together, kind of you like know? a puppet master. Yeah, yeah, it's, I don't know. So anyway, it, it makes me uncomfortable, but I always try to see the other side of it, too. Yeah. So they had that part. Yeah. Then they had him uh, calling the family session. Well, that was a shit show, and uh, just sort of stuff like that. And not, not things that I think... People uh, sort of expect from a therapist, maybe. Now that one, I personally felt a hundred percent comfortable with, right? With, because, oh, right, right, right. Because like the name changing thing, I, I think I, I wouldn't be comfortable saying that kind of thing. But like, it's clear that that family session was bad. Oh, right. And if you're working with someone who, I mean, the other thing about Ellen is they show her personality. She does kind of push people away by mm-hmm. sometimes being rude or snarky, right? That's why she gets out of the treatment center. That if you're not straight with her, then maybe you have even less of a chance right. of forming any rapport. So for him to call it like he sees it, and as was obvious, to me, that definitely felt within bounds of yeah. therapy. Yeah, absolutely. No, that makes sense. That, yeah. If the parent was the client, I might not say that. It all depends, right? You yeah. know, And that I think he's trying to empathize with her. Yeah. yeah, it boils down to a lot of uh, making sure that you're being genuine, mm-hmm. I suppose, because if you're being fake with a client, I mean, it's yeah. just obvious. When someone's being fake with you in any interpersonal interaction, that's obvious. Mm-hmm. And when you're exposing things about yourself as uh, someone seeking treatment and someone's kind of not being genuine with you, you don't feel comfortable with that. So yeah. being genuine and having rapport. So, yeah, and it worked in that situation. And part of what he does, I think, is he purposely uses profanity. Yeah. And I think that it does send the message to a client like, we're we're gonna be open and real with each other. Sure. I'm not saying that's the only way in the mm-hmm. cell just go and I'm just like, Hey, let me list all of this profanity for you and then we're instantly was... bonded. Yeah. Thought that's you were the... just gonna go for it. That's the next gonna... segment of this. this but the other thing he does which I really like, so this is why I think there's more like you said, more to like than dislike. 
is he, and I, and I do think this is unorthodox, he is open about he's kind of a workaholic, right? That consumes oh, yeah. him. And that kind of therapist self-disclosure in a key situation like that, because she's kind of like, she doesn't seem that inclined to open up nope. to him. And one way, you have to be careful, because if you're doing self-disclosure, it has to be about the client. Yep. It cannot be about you. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes it's hard to figure out, but I try to be extremely mindful. It's not like an accident if I self-disclose, right? right? It's usually if someone is um, really perfectionistic, if they ask me a direct question that I'm comfortable answering then i can do that but it's it's intentional Mm -hmm. it's not something accidental or something like that and and i thought that was a good scene i mean you see some of that in goodwill hunting of course one of my favorite movies and so i thought that was good yeah so definitely uh, i guess maybe going back to the question when is it okay to be an unorthodox Mm -hmm. therapist I started uh, answering it midstream. Sorry. No, that's okay. No, I I think that you did answer it. And it just really boils down to when it's for the best benefit for the client. And and when you can do it in a way that doesn't damage rapport or, or close off the client, um, you know, in a, in a way that you're being genuine to yourself and the relationship that you have with the client. So, yeah. And I liked when he took them out in the rain yeah. like that. And I'm not, I haven't done that with a client, but I feel like taking them on those things that kind of, challenge them or even get them thinking about something other than food or some any kind of experience like that i think that is more common especially in inpatient or people have not responded to treatments and so really the romantic relationship thing and telling her to change her name were the big ones for me yeah but i think it's worth mentioning too that i think one of the powerful methods that i would argue is central to the in their it's residential. It's not really an inpatient hospital or yeah, something, but it's residential. Yeah. And so I, I think one of the key things is, one, there's some connecting by them, which actually also that could be seen as harmful too, right? She sees the other woman in her room, like, hiding her vomit and stinking oh, right. exercise, and that's not that could be problematic. But they also relate to each other, so there's some benefits. But the main thing boils down to an extremely straightforward classic behavioral modification mm-hmm. program which is if you earn these points, and basically they're all desirable behaviors, eating food, not sneaking exercise, being healthy, doing chores, like a generally mm-hmm. good thing, then you earn things that the person's incentivized to do, like have a night out or mm-hmm. to do special things like that. And so that is that is actually super orthodox, right? That's oh, yeah. kind of the, the, the basics. And I also, getting to that point, liked that they said, you know, you, you get these you earn these privileges and it's not like a bribe at all. It's just Mm -hmm. like when you're healthier, it's more comfortable for you to make your own good choices when you go out and things like that. And I like that they say like, we're not giving you a meal plan and it's just, you have to get your weight up, but you make your own decisions about how you make that happen. Mm -hmm. And so that also gives some ownership to them and how they make their choices. And you see like one person's eating a jar of peanut butter and they're just different things. Yeah. Or the uh, the big part of the plot was the candy. I, it, wasn't, it wasn't a candy mm-hmm. bar. Sort of a candy bar. Yeah. Uh, some sort of treat of some mm-hmm. kind where that uh, Ellen really used to, to like. And uh, Luke's trying to get her to engage in one of, eating one of those again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She has one for dinner at one point. She cuts yeah. off little pieces of it and eats it. Which is a nice, and she's getting support to do that mm-hmm. too. And this, and asking, that's, you know, how, how are you able to do that? She's asking them and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah, so great. Uh, next uh, question that we have on Facebook. Um, how, 
Facebook is interrupting me by having a, oh boy, this is not what I want. Facebook is interrupting me with its new feature oh, of no. having uh, things pop up when someone comments to you. Oh no. Which isn't great. Just give me a one second. Oh boy. Yeah, I'm going to need a moment. That's okay. Do you want, I have the, the sum version of them. Sure, that sounds good. Um, one of the questions is about myths about anorexia and, you know, which kind of ones exist. So I, I wanted to point out one particular study that was published in 2006 in the International Journal of Eating Disorders by Stuart Keel and Chiavo, I think is how it's pronounced. And what they did is they came up with a clever way to test stigma, and this is over 10 years old, so I'd be interested to see if this has been repeated and if anything's sure. changed. But basically what they do is people read a little summary about um, about an individual, and they, they are either described as having um, being a healthy person, a person with asthma, a person with schizophrenia, or a person with anorexia. Oh no, I said that wrong. I was I was confusing with another site. But basically, they had participants recruited from the community that completed questionnaires asking them directly about questions about healthy person, a person with asthma, and a person with schizophrenia, and a person with anorexia nervosa. And what they found is that the evaluations of personal characteristics were most negative for people with anorexia as compared to people with asthma, schizophrenia, or healthy. Specifically, participants believed that the person with anorexia was the most to blame for his or her condition, was best able to pull him or herself together if they wanted to, and was most acting that way for attention, and that biological factors were least relevant in developing the illness. So all those things are untrue. I mean, the perceptions oh, yeah. matter. And the, the latter one that I mentioned, for example, there are clearly biological factors involved mm -hmm. with anorexia, both speaking of genetics and biological changes that happen once someone is in a starvation state. And so those are myths uh, about vanity that people are doing out of appearance that they can just snap out of it. And it's maybe more so this than as they compare to someone with schizophrenia, people are seen as being blamed for these things. And so... I think some of that comes from, it's kind of complicated in cultures like in the United States where it's prized to be thin mm -hmm. and a lot of people are dieting. It's hard, I think, this is speculation, it might be harder for people to see the difference between people dieting and choosing things like that versus people who have a serious mental disorder yeah. that compromises the way that they see things and their behaviors. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Does the movie get into much about the etiology or the cause of Ellen's eating disorder, I'm having a hard time remembering because yeah. it is a complicated picture, uh, like with a lot of uh, uh, mental disorders. And I don't, I remember the. I'm sorry, I ask you a question and I just keep talking. <laughs> I remember the the. the You're gonna just start doing this alone. <laughs> you won't even have to be here. That's anymore. an excellent That's question, question Brandon. Brandon. Now let me answer. Uh, I remember the stepmother character offers mm -hmm. up a variety of uh, reasons. Uh, of course, listeners at home can't see this, but I'm doing air quotes. Reasons. Quote, <laughs> I can unquote. verify that's yeah. true. I started doing my air quotes like this. Reasons. <laughs> so it kind of surrounds the word. It's like a mini wave or yeah. something. So uh, one of which being uh, that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Ellen, Ellen's mother is in a same-sex relationship. Mm -hmm. And the stepmom seems to think somehow that's causing her eating disorder, uh, which 
It had something to do with that. I'm forgetting exactly what she said. They got, I believe, they got divorced, uh, The her parents, and her biological mom has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and apparently had very clear, active, manic episodes. Okay. And then, and then um, came out as le- as a lesbian, and they and so the stepmom links it to that because of the timing with the okay. anorexia, and I think I see. It, while that explanation is not remotely course, realistic, yeah. except for the stressors part and maybe the sure. familial link to right. mental health issues, um, you know the realistic part is just the attempts to explain it, but it's also clear throughout the dad. He's he's absent. I mean, he doesn't come to the family session. That's realistic, but it that's not great. He doesn't he doesn't go to pick her up from the airport, and it's not clear if he was always like that or if he's responding to avoiding mm-hmm. her because she's ill. Mm-hmm. So two things in response. Mm-hmm. I want to. So the movie, do, of course, doesn't imply right. the link between the the, For, yeah, the biological yeah. mom and the user. I don't I don't want to say that. No, I don't the, think it's that. Oh, really. okay. The movie also like. The, I think people are rolling their eyes a little bit at that. In, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. within the movie, they're like, that's, right. you know, like, yes. her sister and she are like... I mean, Ellen rolls her eyes a lot anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or yeah. Eli, as she starts right. to go by. Yeah, so I don't want to fault the film for that, because of, they weren't spreading any misinformation right. with that. Um, and then, the to speak on to the, the dad part, not mm-hmm. being there, I thought it was actually kind of a powerful narrative tool that you mm-hmm. we actually don't even see yes, the dad in so the too. movie once. I almost wondered if that Jack character was him, and that's why I didn't. I'm like, but why would they cast someone who's not there? That's like the running gag in Frasier too. That like, um, there's a character Maris who's never seen throughout oh, the whole show. Interesting. So anyway, I um, need to watch Frasier. It was even just recommended to <laughs> me by someone else this week, and it's finally time. I you think. know, it's. A pretty strong split there. I see there are people who just love it and other people who just can't get into it. And I don't see much middle ground there. So sure. It's kind of the dry humor, right, that people don't like? It's, it's, um, so this, <laughs> this is Kevin Smith's explanation, sure. and therefore it is true. No, um, I agreed with his interpretation of it because he didn't want to watch it. It seems like it's a snobby show. I've heard other people say oh, that too, like the joke is... They're all snobby, elitist jokes because Fraser and his brother are, they're like a finicky kind of like um, trying to have the best of everything and the trendiest of everything. And, and like um, Kevin Smith described it as like, it's like a New Yorker cartoon that you can't understand. And that's what he thought. But then his wife got really into it. I explain all of my points for Kevin Smith anecdotes. Right, <laughs> and she's like, you got to watch this episode. It's really funny. So he finally watched it and he's like, this show is outstanding. Then started his podcast from it. And he, and he said, because the initial impression is that the jokes on the people who don't get their fancy stuff, but the whole thing is that they're buffoons. You're making sure. fun of how ridiculous it is that they think they're so, so they do like typical things like, theater farcical stuff and they both have a lot of um both Niles and Frazier have a lot of theater background well the people who play them Kelsey Grammer and David Hyde Pierce and so they're trying to throw the fancy soiree but like everything goes wrong so like that's highly amusing to me but other people don't find that amusing okay Oh, there are carryover writers to Modern Family and I definitely see in that they do stuff like the double meanings, mm-hmm. you know, that they often do and that and stuff like that. But um, but anyway, don't force it is my advice. Sure. But if you happen to get into it, let me know. Okay, sounds good. And then good. block out 20 to 25 hours to discuss it. Perfect. <laughs> Will do. 
Actually, uh, he's a good. They're both mental health professionals, so okay. we can do some brief mention of them. Yeah, no, that's only cover mental health professional depiction. Which should probably be soon. Yeah. Yeah. There's plenty of them. Maybe maybe uh, next week. So you go episode. watch those eleven yes, seasons. We'll also start with Cheers, so that you just have like oh, twenty years of episodes. I can't wait. I haven't actually watched all of I'm Cheers. I'm just going to <laughs> give up on my dissertation for the rest of the <laughs> this year. This is solid advice. Mm, maybe I can turn that into my dissertation somehow. <laughs> no. uh, anyway, what were we talking about? Oh yeah, to the bone, not Frasier related. That was my fault though. Well, how did I don't remember? Oh, because Maris is never seen, which oh, is yeah. a small like part of the show. But also, Maris has an eating disorder, and so I've actually thought about writing a post. I mean, there is no way of knowing that, but um, well, there is a way of knowing that if you've seen all the shows like me. But but actually, it she and their treatment of the eating disorder is not compassionate, oh, and okay. since. Usually we rank all of our characters as compassionately treated. It would be interesting to talk about yeah. that. So oh, that anyway, great. something to explore. Yeah, so much. To but talk it was about an effective device, which is the right. point: is that you don't, you literally don't see him the whole time. And it, it really makes it salient that he's not it in does. the picture. Yeah, it does. All right, so I'm I'm looking at the clock right now, and we're we're creeping right up on about an hour long, and I. I suspect we're probably only about half done with the content we were planning to talk about. I've still got a lot left to say. Oh yeah. Uh, so maybe we'll we'll do an what is it called? Watch me use a clunky sports metaphor. Call an audible. We'll switch up our play <laughs> mid mid game here, and uh, and turn this into a two parter. How does that sound? That sounds great to me. Okay, I think we're gonna do that. So th- sorry for if you were tricked by the beginning where we, I didn't inform you this would be a two-part. But we had more to say than I thought, so I think we'll turn this into a two-part. We'll come back next week and finish up To the Bone, but we'll still put this out as a bonus episode. For yeah. yeah. I, I think I think that, you know, these questions are outstanding, oh, so thank you so much the people who contributed questions. But they have us thinking about a lot of other things yeah. that I didn't even initially stand mm-hmm. out to me in the yeah. movie. Oh, absolutely. There's a lot to unpack, and I mm-hmm. want to make sure we take enough time to do it because I think the movie's worth talking about, and of course the topic is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, so uh, without further ado, I'll save a lot of my wrap-up uh, stuff for the end uh, with uh, pearls of wisdom and so on and so forth. But if you do have any questions that come up uh, while you heard the first part or maybe you just got a chance to watch the movie, uh, feel free to Facebook or tweet them to us and uh, we'll make this an even longer sort of series as we answer more episodes or questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, did I say more questions? I don't remember. <laughs> I, I, once I talk for too long, I, I don't know what I'm saying anymore. It's very much a stream of consciousness yeah. <laughs> sort of, uh, thing. So uh, we'll cut it off here. And if, thank you so much for tuning in and we'll, we'll be back to finish up this topic next week. Thank you.